Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you here with us at the Nine Mile Campus, and good morning to those of you who are congregated over at our Spanish Trail Campus on the other side of town. We welcome those live bodies who are in the houses with us this morning, and to those of you that are watching uh, with us online, uh, we're delighted to welcome you here as well and pray that God does a great work in everybody's life uh, this morning. Hope everybody's had a wonderful Fourth of July weekend. Everybody had a good and happy fourth. Amen. Boy, it just poured buckets of rain at my house, but I grilled a steak in the garage. Can somebody say amen? Turned off every smoke detector, blew the house up nearly, but we had meat to eat in the family of Locke. So we're hopeful that everybody's had a great and wonderful Fourth uh, of July. I, you know, here's the thing. Everybody knows it. Our country's messed up. We just messed up. But I still rather live here than any place else on the planet. And so we're grateful. Winston Churchill once said that democracy was the worst form of government imaginable, except for all the rest. <laughs> That's a great statement. And so listen, we know we're quirky, we got warts and all, but we're thankful to live in a land of freedom. And we're surely praying for better days ahead here in the good old USA. Uh, Today is not the 4th of July, it's the 5th of July, and you may not know what that means, but that means today is my mama's birthday. So she's probably watching today, and so mama, happy birthday. We'll be seeing her soon, and uh, love my mama, and uh, missed her, and I've got a couple of days, hopefully, that we're going to be able to connect in the midst of coronavirus. We're going to take the risk and everything. Uh, because life is just better when you can do it face-to-face. Isn't that right? I am excited to start a new series of messages today for the month of July. We're doing a four-part series. All of our texts will be taken from Paul's letter to the Romans and the 12th chapter. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can be joining me either in print form or on an electronic Bible to Romans chapter 12. The title of our series for this month, that we're going to team teach it. So you'll hear several pastoral voices throughout uh, the month of July, and we'll give some of our other very capable preachers the opportunity to break the bread of life before the people of God here at Hillcrest. But we're calling this series World Changers because, you know, that's what the family of God is supposed to be. The people of God are collectively and individually supposed to be light shiners, image bearers of Jesus Christ, so that the world can be changed through the ministry of the gospel. So in a nutshell, we're going to use some of the very practical material that the Apostle Paul gives to the people of God in Romans chapter 12 in order to kind of dig deeply into what we mean when we talk about genuine, authentic, biblical Christianity. That's just so important that we understand that. Because so many times we make the mistake of thinking Christianity is fundamentally about what we know. And it is about knowing some things. You can't be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ without knowing some things about Jesus Christ. You can't fully worship God and understand God and live in light of the plan and the grace of God without knowing some things about God. And so there are things we do need to know. We do need to grow in our understanding of Scripture and grow in our understanding and intimacy of God and with God, but it's so important that we do something with all that biblical knowledge, right? It's important that we live it. It's important that others be able to see that the Lord has transformed our lives, 
that he's made us different, <clears throat> that something new is alive within us. Because through the years, the thing that I've found about people who are skeptical about God and skeptical about Christianity, we tend to sometimes think they want to know if it's true. And that certainly is a part of it, I think. But more than even wanting to know whether or not our faith is true, most people who are skeptical simply want to know, does it make a difference? I mean, is it really real? Because we have this image out in the world of kind of living two-faced lies. We start to talk about things that are holy and prioritize things that are holy, but then when others look at us, they oftentimes don't see anything different than what they see in their families or in their workplaces and the way they live their own lives. And so there's a holy disconnect there. And that's what people want to know. Does this thing really make a difference? Has it really changed your life or is it all just a matter of lip service? Is it real? Or is this image that people have about the church being filled with hypocrites really what's real and genuine? Are all those people down there at that church on the corner uh, spiritual mask wearers living in a sea of literal mask wearers these days. The first few verses of Romans 12 is about that. It's fundamentally about authentic, genuine Christian faith, something that's not only to be known and understood, but something that's also meant to be openly and obviously lived out. And this is why in the great majority of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, Paul regularly and consistently has a section in most of his letters where he spends a lot of time talking about the practical aspects of faith. In letters like Romans and in letters like Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians, Paul typically begins with this deep explanation of the theological underpinnings of our faith. He tells us what we're supposed to believe. That's the case with the first 11 chapters of Romans, for example. The deepest theological teaching in the Bible is found in the first 11 chapters of Romans. But then in most of those letters, you can take a, uh, a Sharpie and kind of draw a line right down at some point. Like in Ephesians, it's literally at the halfway mark. In Galatians, it's right after chapter 4. In Romans, it's right after chapter 11. There's a line that you can draw where Paul will make a 90-degree shift, and he'll move from this deep-seated discussion about theological, doctrinal matters of our faith, what we're to believe with our minds and hearts, to how that faith is supposed to be practically ex uh, expressed in everyday life. The theologians call that practical section of Paul's letters paranesis, and it's just moral or ethical underpinnings, moral or ethical teachings. And that's what we have in Romans chapters 12 through 15. It's the practical, ethical, moral part of Paul's letter to the Romans where he teaches us how to take all this rich, deep theology that he's just spent 11 chapters unpacking, justification by faith, sanctification by the Spirit of God, God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the church. He's going to take all of that and then say, now, here's how it's supposed to make a real difference in your 
everyday life. Here's how it's supposed to change your life, how it's supposed to change your allegiances, how it's supposed to change your loyalties, how it's supposed to change your desires, how it's supposed to change your attitudes, how it's supposed to change your everyday actions and reactions so that two things happen with your life as a believer and mine. First, you glorify God with the way you live your life. And second, you influence lost people so that they come to know the faith that should radically change your life. So today, we want to begin this series uh, talking about world-changing faith, what it looks like, what it's all about, by turning our attention to Romans 12. And today, I want to talk to you about the vital aspect of love in a believer's life. Romans 12, two verses alone today for the most part. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I want us to just stop there today, and what we're going to do is unpack the rest of this paragraph, which takes up about that much space in your English Bibles for the rest of the month of January. But for today, we just want to talk about how Paul qualifies this fundamental, most fundamental quality in every believer's life, and that is what is to be, from God's perspective, a world-changing love for God, and literally for all people. Let me give you three things uh, to chew, four things actually to chew on this morning. First, world-changing love, notice it, is genuine. Let love, he says, be genuine. Now, we've talked about love and the importance of love so much in the church and for so long that whenever a preacher stands up and mentions, we're going to talk for a few minutes about love this morning, sometimes the congregation just dismiss it. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, love. Yep, we got that, preacher. Well, I'm not so sure we do. Not so sure that we always do. It's, it's like it becomes so familiar that oftentimes the familiarity causes us not to really pay much attention to it anymore. And the thing that I've learned about foreign languages, biblical languages, if you don't lose it or use it, you will surely lose it. And the thing about love is that's true with it as well. Love is the most basic, fundamental concept of the Christian life. It's the most important character quality of a believer. There is not even a close second. Love is primary. And frankly, the, world, the reason that's an issue is that the world, when it looks at the church oftentimes, doesn't see a lot of love when they look at the people of God. They see criticism. Uh, they see hypocrisy. Uh, they see politics. They see all kinds of things. But what they don't often see is biblical love as God defines it, a love that they really can't and often don't understand. And yet, love is the distinguishing mark of world-changing Christianity. Je didn't Jesus say that in John 13? By this shall all people know that you are my disciples. By what? That you love one another. This is how people know. This is how people know we belong to Christ. This is how people know 
that we belong to one another as a family of faith. This is how people know that we've been born again, that we've been radically changed. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In fact, when it comes to Christianity, love is what some have called in the emphatic position. Love is primary. Love, the Bible teaches, does it not, that uh, it's something that's more important than any other dimension of Christian character. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, for example, he'll list the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. For the fruit of the Spirit is, and then what's the next word? Love. And then he lists off about eight other character qualities that define the residency of the Spirit in a person's life. How do you know you've been baptized and indwelled by the Holy Spirit? There is love, there is joy, there is peace, there is patience, there is gentleness, there is goodness, there is faithfulness, there is kindness, there is self-control, or at least there is supposed to be, right? And it's interesting right there at the beginning, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And many people see that as just listed, love listed first along with several other things. But then there are some Bible interpreters that say, no, really the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so rather than seeing that list linearly or like a list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, instead you to see it as really a list of one. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then shooting off of love like spokes on a hubcap are the other eight things that he lists there. Does that make sense? And I don't know if that's right or not. It's hard to tell. But it's a good way to interpret this based on what the rest of the Bible says about love. For example, the Bible also says that love is more important than any law. All the commands of God in the Old Testament, I forget exactly how many there are. It's over 600 of them when you add them up. And God spoke every one of them out loud to Moses. So Moses could write them down. And yet love is more important than any of those 600 plus laws. They asked Jesus about that, didn't they? Lord, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments given by God? And you remember what Jesus said. I'm going to give you two for the price of one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, for no extra charge, I'm going to give you the second because it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So they ask him, what's the greatest of all of God's commands? He gives them not one but two, and both of them have something to do with love. Vertical love in terms of our priority relationship with God, horizontal love for all of humankind. Paul says we, as born-again believers, we regard no one anymore according to the flesh. So we love everybody. We see everybody through eternal eyes. We're supposed to see everybody in the way God sees them. Not as people who have differences from us, though they will have differences, but as people that matter to God. People are important to God. We've got to get over this business of writing people off because they don't look like us. They don't look like us. They don't believe like us. They do vile, wicked things according to the Word of God. Yeah, I get all of that, but the bottom line is none of that matters. We're supposed to love them like God loved us before we were saved. Love them unconditionally. And you can do that without condoning behavior because love is more important than any law. It's more important, the Bible says, than the possession of any gift. 
Love is more important than sacrifice. You can make all the sacrifice. Listen, you can give 25% of your income to God, but if you're devoid of love, God says you might as well take it out in the backyard set fire to the money. If I surrender my body to the flames, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. Zero in the eyes of God. I mean, so you can tell, and most of us know this, as we read the totality of the biblical record, love's just like a big deal to God because it's what he does to the most valuable part of his creation, which are human beings. And Paul begins this section by simply saying, let your love be the real deal. Let love be genuine, as Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies would say. Let love be genuine. That's really the statement that dominates the whole passage here in chapter 12. Because this love is not a trumped up love. It's not a phony baloney love. It's not a lip service love. It's not a candy coated, sucralose coated kind of love. It is genuine love. Did you know that the word genuine is like the opposite of the word for hypocrisy? When you want to negate something in the Greek New Testament, you just put a letter A in front of the word. A theist is a believer in God, but you put a letter A in front of it and then does the word. An atheist or an atheist, which is, doesn't believe in God. A, a Gnostic is somebody that lives for knowledge, but you put a letter A in front of it and it's an agnostic and it's somebody that doesn't know anything or doesn't think they know anything, right? The word in the Greek New Testament, hypocrites, is a word that we get our word hypocrite from. It's an easy word because it's just transliterated, hypocrites. But the Greek word for genuine here is anupocrites, without hypocrisy. And so if you want a literal translation, that's what it would be. Let love be unhypocritical. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. The hypocrite, of course, you remember, was the stage actor. It was the person who wore a mask. Back in the ancient period, stage actors, usually guys would play all roles, including kids and women. And so they put on a mask as they portrayed uh, whoever it was they were playing. And a hypocrite is a mask wearer. And Paul says, when it comes to love, don't wear a mask. Be real, be sincere, be genuine, because the totality of the biblical witness is there's no such thing as pretend love. Pretend love is an oxymoron, isn't it? There is no pretend love. Either it's real or it's not love. Who was the most notorious hypocrite in the New Testament? Judas, that's right. Judas pretended for three years walking with Jesus to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't love Jesus. He never loved Jesus. Sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and a phony baloney kiss at the end of his stay on earth. Now, if you want to influence others for Jesus, it requires authenticity, particularly as it relates to love. Genuine faith lived with genuine love because nothing's more important than that. Jesus said it again, John 13, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let love be genuine. That's world-changing love. Secondly, we notice here that world-changing love, not only genuine, principled. 
It's principled. In other words, it's, it's not a spineless love. Love has backbone. Love speaks the truth. Love speaks the truth even though sometimes it hurts. Psychologists in recent decades have coined a phrase for that. They call it tough love. But it's as old as the ancient scriptures. It's been around as long as there have been a people of God. Paul says here in verse 9, abhor what is what? Evil. Hate it. Cling to what is good. It's kind of unusual for a biblical writer like Paul to make a statement about love and then turn right around in the next breath and make a statement about hate. But he says there are some things believers are to love, namely people, and there are some things believers are to hate, to loathe, to despise, namely the things God says he hates, the things God says he loathes, the things he despises. So what that teaches us is that love's not just a blind emotional attachment. It's not something that you coddle. Every parent in here understands that. There are times that you you have to put the scowl on your face, right? Life's not always laughter. I mean, we just have too many parents in the world today that want to be their kid's best buddy. God didn't call you to be the best buddy of your kids. He called you to be their parent. Sometimes that means you have to set up straight wipe the smile off your face, and get righteous in the will of God when those kids are straying in ways that are harmful to them. And so there's a moral imperative to love. Love never rejoices in unrighteousness. We can love all people, but that doesn't mean we rejoice in what they're always doing. You see the difference? You can, you can speak the truth, but do it in love. And the reason that's true, the reason we have to do that with other people, if we say we love them, is because of the destructive effects that sin always has on people. Sin kills. Sin maims. Sin warps. So be be very careful about saying that you love someone and then applauding their sinful behavior, condoning their sinful behavior, encouraging their sinful behavior. Listen, if you applaud somebody's sinful behavior or encourage it, it's to speak with forked tongue to say that you really love those people. Because you don't. That's rejoicing in unrighteousness. Now, this is what drives a lot of people crazy because they don't see how it's possible to love a person and not condone what the person chooses to do with their life. People don't understand this concept we've talked about for years of loving the sinner and hating the sin. But that's exactly what Paul says to do here. Let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil. That's what he says we're supposed to do. So real love isn't drippy like syrup. It has moral backbone. It hates what's evil because God hates what is evil. So our love is supposed to be consistent But it's also supposed to be discerning, principled. Now, a lot of people hear that and say, well, you know what? I just don't want to judge. Well, you can make a judgment and have a moral imperative to make a judgment without being judgmental in the process. It would be hypocritical for you to point fingers and call somebody's behavior out when you're doing like the same thing. That 
is inconsistent, and that's hypocrisy. That's judgmentalism. And that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 1 when he says, Judge not lest you be judged. But he's not talking about making a biblical moral discernment. So whenever anybody says, Well, I just don't want to judge, you already have. You already have. You say, No, I haven't said anything about that. No, but by your lack of confrontation, To the person that you say you love, you have made a judgment against the Word of God that you really don't believe it. And you've devalued what God has said Himself about righteousness and holiness. And this is why you got to be very careful. I just don't want to judge. You're going to judge one way or the other. The main thing is let your judgment, your discernment, be without judgmentalism, live consistently, live to glorify God, and then demonstrate love for those you claim to love by encouraging them away from behavior, choices that the Bible says are clearly harmful and clearly destructive. Abhor what is evil, Cling, stick like glue to what is good. And God says, you do that, you'll have an authentic, genuine love that's backed up by a life of moral integrity, which is a life that always glorifies God. Everybody with me so far? Let love be genuine at the same time. Let love be principled and as you live a principled love that is based on a foundation of the righteousness of Christ. Let me give you the flip side of that and that is a third thing namely world changing love is submissive. Submissive. Now that's a word that most people don't like either Uh, but the Bible says here in verse 10 this is a great statement by the way this doesn't get a lot of press but it should. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then watch this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, that, that's on nobody's list of memory verses. But it ought to be. Because it well summarizes what we're talking about here. Outdo one another in showing honor. We, we live trying to outdo one another in cutting the legs out from other people. Proving other people wrong, taking other people down, zooming past other people so that others notice us rather than that. I mean, you get the picture. And yet, what a hidden gem here. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. That phrase, brotherly affection, is one word in the Greek New Testament, Philadelphia. You've heard of it. Philadelphia, that's exactly the word. Tender affection. It's the kind of love that should come from intimate family relationships. Love one another like you love your own brother. The only problem is there are a lot of brothers that don't love their other brother. But you should. There ought to be a deep-seated kind of affectionate love. And then Paul takes this word, Philadelphia, the root form philos or phileo, And he applies it to Christian relationships. We're to be united by the same kind of affection and warmth 
that we have or should have for those within our own family. But more to the point, zone in on this concept of honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I don't know that it's so much true at our church. I've never really noticed it, but I do know that it's true in a lot of churches. There's a lot of competition that can go on in churches. Who's got the biggest Sunday school class? Who's got the most effective ministry? Y'all know what I'm talking about. There can be a lot of competition, a lot of competition between pastors on the staff, a lot of competition can go on in churches. And yet Paul says that there is room for some degree of competitiveness in the house of God but it ought to be a, competitive, a competitiveness that's based on who can outdo each other in lifting other people up as more important than self. Now, you don't see a whole lot of that in churches or in any other organization in a world that is typically dog-eat-dog. Dog. But if there is to be competition in the family of faith, let it be right here. A competition for who can outdo the other in showing the highest degree of respect and honor to other people. That sounds like a good game plan to me, doesn't it to you? Amen? I remember years ago when I was in Branson, Missouri, back in the day in the 90s and early 2000s, the greatest marriage teacher, the most prolific marriage author in Christian circles was Gary Smalley. We've had Gary's son, Greg Smalley, here twice to do marriage conferences for us, but Gary Smalley was based in Branson, Missouri. My church was not far from where his headquarters was, and we used to go over there and raid them for literature and try to find free books and stuff like that. It was really great, great people. And he used to do a teaching that changed my life, radically changed my life. He was in a group of people. And he did this more than once. And at one point, he would come out and he had a, like a broken down violin. Part of it was separated and strings hanging out everywhere. And it needed to, it needed to be reworked and revarnished. And it was just, you know, it was kind of messed up. And he said, I'm going to tell you a story about this violin for a few minutes, but some of you all may want to look at it. And everybody started passing it around and looking at it and and then eventually he came back to the violin and he said, well, it's making its way through the audience here today and that's great. And so wherever it is, one of the things you may want to do is kind of look down in the hole there. And, and what you'll see when you look down in the hole there is the, are these words. It will say Stradivarius 1689. Today at auction, that a violin refurbished would probably be somewhere between two and eight million dollars. And the funny thing about that is when he just said those words, Stradivarius, which is like top of the heap when it comes to violin. If you don't know anything about violins, that's like the top of the heap, right? And the thing about it was the reaction of the audience when he said, oh, by the way, look inside there, you'll see the word Stradivarius. Gasp. There was an obvious gasp. And then he would stop and he would say, now, that's what I'm getting at. That right there is perfect. And then he would say, husbands and wives, that's kind of like what you're supposed to do in your relationship with one another. 
And she comes walking around the corner, there ought to be an audible gasp. When he comes in from the garage after working hard on the yard, there ought to be an audible, man, this is the greatest thing. You are the $6 million man. And that's what's missing. It all gets down to one word. Y'all still with me? Amen. What's the word? Honor. Honor. You want a slice of heaven on earth at home? Honor. You want to have a church that lives in obvious unity and oneness? Honor. Honor God. Honor one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Outdo one another in showing honor because without honor there really is no biblical love and without love we pretty much measure up a zero in the eyes of God even though we can quote the Bible in four different languages everybody tracking with me so honor may well be the most important concept in biblical human relationships and that's why this verse ought not be neglected real love is submissive it lowers itself so that others can be lifted up as more valuable and more important than me so if we make life all about us this gets back to the Rick Warrenism of the 90s it's not about you and it really isn't about you and it's not about me it's about looking like Jesus, who the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus outdid himself when it came to showing honor to sinners like you and me. I barely have time to mention one last thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is that world-changing love ought not only be genuine and principled and submissive. World-changing love is an obligation. Or if you prefer an easier word to spell, it's a debt. Now, you don't see that quite as overt. It's inferred in Romans chapter 12. But then Paul will wax a little bit eloquently and finish out chapter 12, and then he'll turn the corner into chapter 13 and talk about our relationship with the government for a little bit. And then, after he does that in Romans 13, he comes back to love again. It's like he had a secondary thought that was planted in his cerebrum by the Spirit of God, and it was almost like, oh yeah, I left out something about love that I should have said back in Romans chapter 12, but let me, while it's on my mind and while the Spirit has brought it to my heart, let me mention it to you right now. And he says it in Romans 13, 8. Oh, no one anything except to what? To love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that at this point, Paul is remembering the statement of Jesus in answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, for in this all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. So it's Jesus' way of saying, if you want kind of a summary of the whole Old Testament, here it is, love one another as God has loved you. That's basically the law in a nutshell. And so Paul uses similar language. The one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. But he couches that statement in terms of an obligation that we owe to another person. Now, generally speaking, the Bible would lead us uh, to be very cautious about debt in terms of financial matters. I do not believe that debt is a sin. If it were, we'd have to cast out 90% of the people at Hillcrest. Because you probably owe on your house or you own your car or you own both of them, at least that. But the Bible does teach you ought to be very careful about debt. So when the Bible says, owe no one anything, it's not an absolute prohibition. It just means pay your bills, be responsible. It's wise. But then Paul applies that to human relationships. And he says, there is a debt that as a follower of Christ, you never get out from under. And that is the obligation, the debt of love, not only that you owe God for what he's done for you, but the debt of love that you owe your neighbor. It's a debt that will never be repaid. Can I make a statement? There will never come a time in your life where you have loved someone as much as you should love them. Never. You can't say, you know what, I've been loving this person for 62 years, I am done. No, you can't say that. Never time. There's always an obligation, a never-ending debt. And this broadens Paul's appeal about love from just loving one another in the family of God, which fundamentally I think is what he's talking about in chapter 12, but this includes all people because he uses the word neighbor. Most of the time when Paul says love one another, submit to one another, bear one another's burdens, this is Christian to Christian relationships, one another, one another within the family of God. But then when the word neighbor is used, it's important because somebody asked that to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, who is my neighbor? And you know Jesus' response to that, who is our neighbor? The non-dead. Anybody that's walking, breathing, walking homo erectus on two feet and breathing oxygen, that's your neighbor. So it includes everybody. And the Bible says we have an obligation. We actually have an unpaid debt to those people, even the ones we don't know. That's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Where the hero of a story is not the Orthodox Jew. We think they're going to be the hero. Wasn't the hero. They wouldn't even glance at the broken, bleeding, wounded person lying the side of the road. They passed by on the other side. Took a Samaritan to stop and to tear his garments and to use his oil and his wine and bind up the wounds and 
get the person to a place of shelter and refuge? Who showed love? Not the, or, not the religious, not the orthodox. The enemy and the alien showed genuine love, paid a debt to someone he did not know. See, this is authentic Christianity. That's what it's supposed to look like. Outdo one another in showing honor, love one another unhypocritically for no other reason that you know who that person is and that they're going to live forever and they deserve to be loved as God chose to love you. That, brothers and sisters, is world-changing love. It's genuine, without hypocrisy. It's principled. It has moral backbone based on truth. It is submissive. It honors one another as more significant than oneself. And it's an obligation. It's something we must do in order to bring glory to God and to look and live like Jesus Christ. We do that, we'll push back the darkness. We will make a difference. We will change the world and we'll do it in a way that glorifies our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word, and let all who agree say, Amen and Amen.